Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Now, I don't know um, how you guys are. I know some people are like, I, God gave me a word for the year. And, and I love that because the word is always like breakthrough or it's like power. I never hear anybody like the word is suffering for me this year. You know, it's always like a good, strong word. And, and, but, but I really do believe if there's a word that's going to mark the next year for Bridgepoint, it's going to be the word change. I know as soon as I say that, people go, oh, change. Change is bad. We don't want change. The reality is, Yes, everybody wants change, right? We just like to know what that change is. Here's how I know everybody wants change. If you've ever had a newborn before, you cannot wait until they sleep through the night. And then you can't wait until they're out of diapers. And then you can't wait till they sleep past 6.30 in the morning. And then you can't wait till they stop sleeping past 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Like all the different stages of life, change is a good thing. We just want change in a positive direction. And there's so much that's going to happen at Bridgepoint this next year. I'm so excited for that. So we'd love to see you guys here at 4.30 today. We do have childcare available for age 5th grade and under. And so we'd love to see you here this afternoon. Now, with that being said, uh, this really presents a unique opportunity for me this morning because before we talk about the change and the vision for the next year and where we're going, I think it's important for us to take some time to talk about who we are as a church. Because if you've been at Bridgepoint over the, the past several years, you've probably noticed like there is a distinctive personality or characteristic or calling that we feel that we have as a church. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is a little different than some of the other messages. I just want to share a little bit about what God has done in my heart over the last several years and how he's used that to shape and influence who we are as a church. And then I want to share a passage of scripture that I really think lays out the kind of church that we want to be. Um, so really, I think this story probably starts a long time ago, but if you could just like put your time travel hats on and go back three years ago, January of 2020. In fact, three years ago today was the first service we had in this building, and it was so exciting, and it was awesome, and there was a lot of energy, and 2020 was going to be the best year yet, right? The best is yet to come. And I'll never forget, you know, March rolls around and something about some coronavirus or something, I don't know. And, and all of a sudden we realized, hey, church might have to press pause on in-person services for a few weeks. I actually never forget one of the pastors I talked to said they were pausing until Easter. And I thought, that is crazy. Like, why would you pause your services for so long? And little did we know that it was going to be months and months and months until we were able to gather back together again. And it was during that time that I really began to become convicted about my view of ministry and how I viewed my role as a pastor. Because up until that point, a lot of my time, effort, and energy had gone into a Sunday morning service, right? Like it's been 20 to 25 hours a week, like just prepping for a 30-minute message that if we're being honest, if you remember like one thing, six days from now, I will be excited. Like that's a win. And we'd have meetings with people talking about what kind of sermon series could we do and what can we do on Sunday morning to make services exciting and, and just all about the Sunday morning service. And then when you can't gather together anymore, and then like I had kids in my house, like I know like when you sit down to watch church, when you have kids, you're like screaming at your kids for half the time. You're probably making breakfast for half the time. Like we just realized like 
everything had kind of changed. And so I really had to wrestle with the question, what does it look like to pastor when we can't gather together? Like what really is the job of a pastor and the role of the church? Now, at the same time, I would get on social media, and yes, our nation's been polarized for years, but it just seemed like things like reached a boiling point during that time, and, and maybe it's just me. Maybe you didn't have this experience, but I would get online, and I would see these people that I've been friends with for years. I had known. We'd gone to church together. We'd grown up together, and I would see some of the things they would write, and I would be like, how are we following the same Jesus here, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't know, not to say that I'm better, but it's just like we have two very, very different views of the world and how to be a follower of Jesus in the world. And so I have these two things kind of going on at a time. Like, what does it mean to be a pastor? And I'm realizing that, man, there are some people who can do all the, the church things, right? Like, they could do everything that you would, you would ask for. So you could, they go to church every Sunday, they could be in a life group every week. They could go through growth track. They could be serving every single week and still not actually look any more like Jesus than they did five years ago. And it was that kind of thought that made me realize, man, my job really has to be centered around helping people become more like Jesus and kind of creating a community here that looks like heaven on earth. It was during that time that maybe the verse that stood out to me the most was the Great Commission. If you've grown up in church, you probably heard this before, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says that Jesus came near and said to them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. And I want to leave this verse up for just a moment, because there's a very important part of this verse. It says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also says, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And for a long time, I kind of thought, oh, this means I need to tell people what Jesus taught. I need to, to tell them what the Bible really says. And, and, and man, I felt like it, a mark of a good teacher. It's like, I'm just going to teach you what Jesus said. I want to give you the context behind the Bible. I want you to know what the Bible says. But it doesn't say teach them what Jesus commanded. It said teach them to obey what Jesus has commanded. And there's a big difference there between knowing what Jesus says and actually obeying what Jesus says. Like, I feel this tension in my own life. I know what he says, but then part of me really wants to not do what he says. We know this reality even in our own families, right? I can tell my kids, like, hey, go clean your room. But if they've never done it before, what do they need? They need me to show them how to do it. They need to see my example. I need to be working with them. It's going to take time for them to understand how to make a bed, how to vacuum, how to not just shove everything under the bed. You know, like we got to work with them. And in the same way, we ought to be the kind of people who aren't just telling others what Jesus said, but we got to teach them to do the things that Jesus did. That, I think, is what the mark of a successful pastor, a successful follower of Jesus, a successful church looks like. We're faithful to Jesus, and we're helping other people to do the things that Jesus did. Does that make sense? All right, so as we're kind of going on this journey then, um, I started prepping for this series we ended up doing um, not too long after we started gathering back together. We went through the entire book of Mark, 
And when we get to Mark chapter 3, there's a couple verses there that I think really have come to define at least my view on ministry and really have come to define our church. So I want to read these verses for us and just kind of spend the rest of our time teasing it out. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. All right, so that's our verses for this morning. And some of you hear that demon part, and you're like, where is he going with that? And we'll get there in just a few minutes. But I want to start at the very beginning. It says Jesus goes up on this mountain, which, by the way, any time in the Bible you read about a mountain, know that it's like an important event. Like oftentimes God meets people on these mountaintops. That's why we call them spiritual mountaintops, right? God delivers the Israelites out of bondage to the Egyptians. He takes them to freedom. Where's the first place they go? Mount Sinai. They're going to enter into a covenant together. God's meeting his people on the mountain. You have the prophet Elijah. Like he had reached rock bottom. He was ready to end his own life. And God leads him to a mountain where he speaks to him, he encourages him, and he gives him new, new vision for what his new calling is going to be. So Jesus, likewise, is going up on the mountain. He's doing something new. It's this important, momentous occasion. And it says that he called those he wanted. Now remember, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' goal was to bring heaven to earth, right? He was going to be the king. There's going to be this whole different kind of kingdom, like this whole upside down way of being, right? Like instead of getting even, we forgive people. Instead of uh, lashing out in violence, we choose a path of nonviolence, like this whole different kind of culture. So if Jesus is going to start this revolutionary movement, who would he call? I'm thinking if I'm going to start this revolutionary kind of movement, I know who I'm going to call, I'm going to look for some influencers, right? Because if you know me, I'm not good at social media. I don't think I've posted on Facebook in like two years. I don't know. I'm just not good at it. So we got to get somebody who can get the, the Instagram stories going, and we got to get a hashtag going. And man, maybe I need a marketer, right, to, to come up with a good slogan like make Jesus great again or something like that. We got to get the word out. And, and man, you know, we got to have some rich people who can go ahead and fund this whole thing. Like that's who I need. Maybe some politicians, and we can go ahead and lobby this them to pass laws so that the kingdom can go ahead and come to earth. Like we have all of these different kinds of people that, that, that I might call, but who was it that Jesus actually called? Who was it that he wanted? Well, in the verses that following this, we realize that it's Andrew and Peter and James and John. They're, they're fishermen. They're, they're not influencers. They're not like on the top of the social order. These are probably like rugged guys. Smelly guys, just regular, ordinary people. I mean, and the way the world would look at it, say they're nobodies. There's nothing special about them. They're just regular people. They don't have any wealth or influence or power. And Jesus wanted them. Not only that, but he wanted Matthew, who, by the way, Matthew was known, but he wasn't famous. He was infamous. He was Matthew the tax collector. Because he stole money from people to fund the Roman Empire. He, he manipulated and abused and took advantage of his position to make money off the backs of other people. And yet Jesus looked at him and said, listen, I, I want you to come with me. Or what about Simon the Zealot, who was so committed to his political party that he was willing to kill for it? And Jesus said, no, Simon, you need to leave that behind because I see your potential. I want you Think about this. He called Judas, who he knew was going to betray him, 
And Jesus looked at Judas and said, I want you to. And see, that's good news because you might be thinking, well, Jesus is doing this great thing, but, but I don't have a lot of theological knowledge and I don't have a lot of influence. I'm not really wealthy and I can't really make it. Jesus wants you. He doesn't need anything you have to offer. He just wants you. And I believe like just as he called those disciples, he's calling all of us today. Will we follow him? And these disciples followed Jesus. And it says that he called them first and foremost to be with him. And what that tells me is that first and foremost, we want to be the kinds of people, we want to be the kind of church where we want to be with Jesus. Like that's our number one priority and goal. Like, like we know that, that whoever we're around, we kind of become like those people. I can tell when my kids have been hanging around with certain of their friends because they start to bring in that certain inflection or, or tell those same kind of jokes. And I'm like, oh, that's not Aaron. That's so-and-so right there. Like, like I can tell based on how they're acting, who they've been around. And in the same way, if we want to act like Jesus, we got to spend time with him. Like it's number one priority. Jesus didn't say, hey, I want you to come here. Let me give you the game plan so you can go out. He said, no, come and be with me. It's got to be a priority. And some of you hear that and think, Matt, the kids' ministry is down the hall. What do you mean? We know that Jesus is supposed to be our priority. And I get it that a lot of times we know Jesus should be our priority up here, but sometimes a lot harder to make him a priority in our actual lives. Yeah, I, I was doing some research this week just on like all the things that dominate our thought and attention. Just like we live in a highly consumeristic culture. This is diagnosing the, the issue right there. And I read that in the United States, 40% of our food gets wasted and thrown away, which on an annual basis accounts for $165 billion worth of food, right? Like we think about food so much, we enjoy food so much that we can't even enjoy all the food that we have. Not only that, but fashion accessories. So we're talking watches, jewelry, stuff like that. Uh, more money was spent on fashion accessories last year than on college education, over $100 billion on accessories. Then I read that 50% of all the toys in the world belong in the United States. And if you're wondering, well, we make up like a large percentage of the population. The United States accounts for 4.25% of the world's population. We have over 50% of the toys right here. So we have all of this stuff that's kind of right on the forefront of our mind. But you need to take it a step further and realize like, we all have this like magical device in our pockets called a cell phone, right? It keeps us connected to the internet, to the whole world. Do you know the average person in the United States checks their phone 63 times a day? Not only that, but the average American spends about five and a half hours per day on their phone. Now, if you don't believe me, we got any iPhone users here today? A few? If you didn't raise your hand, I'll pray for you. Android brothers and sisters. I don't know anything about Android, so I can't help you with this. But if you go on your iPhone, you click settings and screen time, it will tell you how much time per day, and it will tell you exactly. Some of you are going to be like, I spent how much time on Instagram? Like, that's a lot of time. Five and a half hours. That's like a large portion of the waking day we spend on our phones. And not only that, but globally, so not just in the U.S., globally, the average social media user spends two and a half hours per day on social media. So we know why you've been in the bathroom for 45 minutes, all right? You're just scrolling on Facebook and Twitter, and as I say all that, not to like guilt or shame anybody, but how is it that we can spend so much time 
thinking about food. I love the joke I saw online a few years ago. It said marriage is just asking what do you want for dinner until somebody dies. I mean, it's just like we think about it all the time. Like sometimes from the moment I wake up, I'm like, what do you want for dinner tonight? Like we got to figure out like we have, we have food that dominates our thoughts. We have material possession that dominates our thoughts. We have all this time on social media and the internet. And by the way, I know that some of the time on the phone is work stuff. I'm not saying those things are necessarily inherently bad, but how can we have five and a half hours of time to spend spend on our phone, and yet we find it so difficult to spend 15 minutes with Jesus. How is it that we can spend so much time out at a meal and enjoy? And by the way, those are all good things. Those things aren't bad, but if we say Jesus is number one priority, then when we lay our head down at night, why do we find ourselves watching Netflix until we fall asleep instead of spending five minutes praying? And I don't say that to guilt or to shame, but I'm wondering if the reality for most of us is We have too much stuff, and we have too much things going on. And maybe to be with Jesus means some of us need to start cutting some things out of our life. Maybe it means getting rid of the TV out of the bedroom. Maybe it means taking one day where you put your phone in another room and you don't check it. Maybe it means that you skip a meal once a week just to spend that time sitting in Jesus' presence. I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I know in my own life, I have so much going on. I'm constantly cutting things out so I can make sure I'm spending time with Jesus because nothing else is more important than that. And I love that right after that, it says they spent time with him so he could send them out. And I'm thinking, how can you be with Jesus, but also like be sent out away from Jesus? What Mark does here is brilliant because he's saying, yes, we want to be with Jesus in proximity, but we also want to be like with Jesus. We like aligned with Jesus. We want to become conformed to his image and his mission. And the way we say this here at Bridgepoint is we want to become like Jesus. Like as we're with him, we want to be shaped and transformed into his image. We did a whole series last year called How We Change. And it's all about how we change because I'm not creative with sermon series titles. It's not who I am. And we talked about there are three things that influence the people that we are. The the first is what we believe. By the way, that's why teaching on Sunday morning, like, that's a good thing. It is important, the stuff that you are reading and the podcasts that you are listening to, because it all shapes our worldview. But belief in itself is not enough to make us change. Because we can read that McDonald's is bad for us, but man, I still love a good McDouble and a large fry. Amen? Don't shame me. That was like only one other person with me. I don't know. Maybe not McDonald's. Maybe it's Chick-fil-A. Like Chick-fil-A ain't healthy either, by the way, people. All right? But we can know that certain things are bad for us. We can know it up here. We can know that we should be exercising. That doesn't mean we're going to start exercising. We know that we should be better financially, but that doesn't mean we're going to. It has to go beyond belief. And the second thing is not just what we believe. It's where we belong right? Like we need other people around us. That's why life groups are so important because you get in groups of people that are going to actually help push you to be more like Jesus, right? We, we know that if you're around the wrong kinds of people, you're going to go the wrong direction. If you're around people who are pushing you towards Jesus, they're going to help you. And I know I need people who are going to challenge me, who are going to encourage me, who are going to point out blind spots. But even that in and of itself is not enough to change us. When studies have shown the last thing that we need is not just what we believe or where we belong, but it's also how we behave. And there are certain habits or behaviors that are necessary for us to implement in our lives if we are going to become like Jesus. And by the way, this makes people uncomfortable 
Because I know that there was a, a time where maybe a lot of churches slipped over towards the legalism side. Like, I don't think that that's like where the pendulum's swinging right now. Um, and so I know people are like, it's not about behavior modification. You know, it's about heart transformation. And, and there's truth to that. But by the way, could we just be real? I think if we're following Jesus, he has some things he wants to say about our behavior. Like, there's probably some of my behaviors that he wants to modify. That's why I don't know if you've ever met someone who's been like following Jesus for 20 years and yet, you know, they curse like a sailor and their, their internet history is probably not something Jesus is going to be proud of. And you, you try to talk to them about it and they say, well, nobody's perfect. And you're right. Nobody's perfect. But you ought to be a little bit more perfect after following Jesus for 20 years than the person who's only been following him for 20 minutes. And so the reality is there are certain habits and behaviors we need to implement in our life. And throughout Christian history, these have been called spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. And here at Bridgepoint, there's really eight of them that we really say this is really the ones we think make the difference in our culture, in our community, in our time. All right, I'm on the screen here for you. They're Sabbath, silence and solitude, fasting, prayer, scripture reading, worship, confession, and then generosity or hospitality. I think sometimes we think generosity is just like giving money, and that might be part of it, but hospitality, like opening up your whole life to somebody else is a part of being generous. And these are the eight. We say this is what it means to be a part of our church community is to do this. Now, by the way, let me back up because we don't ask you to do all of them because if that was the case, I would look at this and be like, nope, can't do it. That's too much. But what we ask is that you pick two. What are two that you could implement over the course of the year? And by the way, if you did two of these over the course of the year, you will look more like Jesus than you did a year ago. Maybe not 100%, but maybe like 15%, like 20% more like Jesus. And I know for me last year, mine were silence and solitude and confession. And by the way, spending time in silence and solitude, when you spend five minutes at the beginning of your day just sitting in silence, picturing Jesus next to you, not saying a word. All of a sudden, I become more aware of where Jesus is all throughout my day. And when I spend time confessing, I have some people that I call, and I confess to them, they confess to me. That keeps you humble. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I'm just saying this is how over the last year God has worked in my life. And I can already tell you this year, I'm not adding two more because I've got my two, but this year I am going to add one more. Right now I'm praying through and working through what does Sabbath look like for me, like a real Sabbath to focus on God and how that works in my life. And I don't know where you are, but maybe for you, you haven't picked your two yet. Or maybe you have your two, and maybe it's like one more God might be leading you to do. But at the beginning of the year, what a great time to do that. And, and as you start to pick the practices that you're going to implement, you're creating something called a rule of life. Everybody say rule of life. All right, good. It's very important you know that it's not rules for life or rules of life. It is rule of life. They don't have to do with rules. The, the, the word rule there comes from the Latin word regula or ruler. It should be like a stick that you would put in the ground to help a vine grow and produce fruit. You see, here's what, what I know. Growth and change is going to happen in your life in one direction or another. Right? Like if you have a vine on the ground, it will grow. It will grow in a number of different directions. But as it grows, it's going to get stepped on, trampled over. The fruit's going to get taken. Branches are going to get cut. It can die. 
But if you put a rule down there, you put some kind of lattice or framework, you give direction to the growth, it gets up off the ground, and that's how it begins producing fruit. These practices in and of themselves are not going to make you more like Jesus, but it provides a framework for the Holy Spirit to begin working in your life to bring about change. Does that make sense? So uh, you guys know last spring, I decided I was going to become a gardener, and I've never been good at it before, and I can stand here today and tell you I'm still not good at it, Um, but I wanted to have this container garden. So you take like five-gallon buckets, and you drill holes in the bottom, you put your soil in, and man, I did everything. I tested the pH, I got it all right, and I was growing um, jalapenos and cilantro and tomatoes, because you guys know I wanted my own salsa garden, right? Just salsa every day. And I could get the jalapenos and the cilantro. They were growing great. But for some reason, like, like the tomato plant started with all this promise, right? Like I, I did everything I was supposed to do. I got the, the nice tomato plant and I got that little cage you put around it because a tomato plant, by the way, it's a vine. So it needs something to grow on. And I would water it and fertilize it and all this stuff. And I remember getting so excited because I had like these big leafy green fl- uh, branches on there. It was great. And then you start to see the little buds pop up. And I'm like, oh, we're going to have some tomatoes soon. But no matter what I did, and no matter how beautiful the plant looked, for some reason I got these teeny tiny little tomatoes that were ripe for about 30 seconds before they started rotting. And I could never get anything. I know what some of you are thinking, Matt, did you get a cherry tomato plant? No, I got one called a Goliath tomato plant. Like I wanted the big ones. And so I'm out here and I'm struggling. And to make matters worse, I would walk out into my yard to take care of my garden. And I would look out my backyard. And then there's another house across the way. And they have like a wrought iron fence. And they also had a container garden. And they also had tomatoes. But they had like the most sickly looking tomato, but like no green leaves on it whatsoever. But you would just go, it almost looked like a stick. But man, I'm going out like plucking off these rotten tomatoes. And no offense, this little old lady would come out and she would pick up basketball sized tomatoes off her plants and like waddle back in the house with them. I'm like, how is she getting all this fruit? And I'm getting nothing. And so I go to my friend, Jamie. You guys know Jamie Snyder. He is like a suburban farmer. I mean, he knows how to grow everything. And so I was talking to him, and he explained to me. He's like, well, Matt, you know, tomatoes are a vine. I'm like, yeah, duh. And he's like, don't duh me. You can't grow tomatoes. And uh, he said, well, what a lot of people do, instead of getting that cage, they'll take a stick or a wrought iron fence railing, and they will wrap their tomato plant around that, and they will just begin cutting off all the green stuff, Because instead of trying to grow leaves, the plant will put all of its effort and energy into producing big, juicy fruit. And all of a sudden, I looked at that and I realized, that's also what happens in my life. Because I think on one hand, there's some of us like, like, there's not really a direction, right? You have that little cone, but there's not really a direction. Like you go kind of from here to here. And this year I have these goals and next year I'll have those goals. But even more than that, like you have all these big, leafy, green parts of your life, right? It looks healthy on the outside. You have a great marriage and your kids are doing awesome. And you're fine. You've never been more financially secure than you are now. And you're healthy and all that's growing great, except there's no fruit in your life. So here's the thing I, I know. You can have a great marriage and look nothing like Jesus. You can have amazing kids and not look like Jesus. You can have all the money in the world and all the health. You can have all the worldly markers of success and not look like Jesus. 
And I wonder how many of us look like my plan that had all this good stuff and no fruit when Jesus is looking for some scrawny little plants but has great big old fruit. See, that's the kind of person I need to be. I know I need to cut things out of my life, but I also need to provide that firm direction for the Holy Spirit to grow me and to change me so I become like Jesus. See, here's the thing. He didn't want them just to become like him, just to say, all right, good job. Pat yourself on the back. Wait till you go to heaven. Wait till I come back. No, no. He, he said, now I'm going to send you out. And he said he sent him out preaching the good news and with authority to cast out demons. Let's start with the preaching the good news part first. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor the point. You can find the message online. I think it's called uh, the gospel's good news for the poor. But a lot of times we think evangelism or preaching, it's like I got to convince somebody to follow Jesus. So let me go through like all the proofs, how we know God is real and how we know Jesus is God's son and, and all this stuff. And by the way, those can be good things. But I think for a lot of us, we get so daunted, like what if somebody asks us a question we don't know? What if they come back with this, that, and the other? But that's not what preaching the gospel meant. Preaching the gospel was not them going out and trying to convince people that Jesus died and rose again, because guess what? At this point in Jesus' ministry, had he died and rose again? No, he had not. We're in Mark chapter 3. There's a lot more chapters to go. No, they're actually going out and saying, hey, guess what? Jesus is king. It's just a proclamation. It's just a declaration. It's just, this is what is real. Jesus is king. And if you want to have those other discussions, that's great. But that's not what evangelism is or preaching the gospel is. But I love that it doesn't just start with them saying, Jesus is king. There's actually some kind of work component that went with that, right? Because they actually had the authority to cast out demons. Now, I don't have near enough time to like break this down. And if you want to have a conversation about this later, let's do it. Maybe we'll do a sermon series on it at some point. But I need you to grant me a couple of things so that I can make this last point, And then we can debate if you needed to grant me those things at all. The first thing is this. The Bible does talk about a spiritual component, a spiritual realm that is at work in the world and in the cosmos around us. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, when the Bible talks about dark spiritual forces, it seems there may be kind of like three different levels that they operate at. So the topmost level, this would be like the devil or the Satan, the accuser, who is like, you know, battling God. But make no mistake, this is not a battle of equal forces where it's like, you know, at the end of Avengers Endgame, where Thanos is coming after the event. That's not how it happens, okay? Like, God, Satan has nothing on God. But that's happening at like the upper level. Now, underneath that, there are dark spiritual forces that are at work at the level of like worldly powers or culture and um, the way the world works, like influence. Which, by the way, if you think about it, if you wanted to really affect change, you would try to change the culture and not just go person to person. And, and these dark spiritual forces, no, they're more effective instead of just going one by one. If I can change the whole culture and worldview into a certain direction, that's much more effective. This is where I see um, like the, the spiritual forces that animate things like slavery or human trafficking. We can say those are evil and those are influenced by dark spiritual forces. We see like poverty or homelessness and hunger. These are things that are being influenced at that top level. And then finally, the last levels, what we see a lot in Jesus' ministry is, yes, it does appear that there are spiritual forces that do work on an individual level where there's some kind of oppression or something going on there. Um, now, I think it's important to point out, number one, that nowhere in the New Testament 
does it command Christians to go and to cast out demons or to do like kind of one-on-one -on -one combat? Okay, no, I'm not saying, I know people are like, well, I know so-and-so and this happened. Maybe some of you have seen that stuff. And I'm not saying that it's not real. I'm just saying it's not a command. Okay, we do have a command on how to engage in spiritual warfare, but that is not the way that God tells us to approach it. So, so let's start at the top level and work our way down again. All right, the devil. Are we supposed to engage with the devil? How did Jesus interact with the devil? Because by the way, when Jesus was in the wilderness fasting for 40 days, he was tempted. Did Jesus like pull out a sword and stab Satan in the heart? No, he, he resisted him. This is why uh, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's just we resist and we're going to let Jesus take care of it. And by the way, Jesus has already defeated him. And how did Jesus defeat him? It was by dying on the cross, by laying down his life. He didn't pick up arms. He wasn't going to take the world back for God. No, he allowed himself to be killed. And then through his resurrection, he disarmed the powers and authorities. And in the same way, real spiritual warfare looks a lot like laying our lives down for the sake of other people. Now let's go on that, that like kind of cultural level. Spiritual warfare looks a lot like being transformed to look more like Jesus. In fact, there's this really famous passage in Ephesians on spiritual warfare, put on the full armor of your God. You guys know that passage? You know, right before that, there's a, Paul dives into the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all those. Like you realize the way that we fight against a culture is we've got to create a counterculture. So instead of being selfish, we become selfless. Instead of being impatient, we become patient. Instead of being racked with fear, we become people full of joy. Instead of looking out for ourselves, we look out for other people. And we are no longer to be conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's why becoming like Jesus is an act of spiritual warfare. And when we become that kind of community, we become a safe house in a world that's in desperate need of rescue and salvation. And then on the individual level, like I really do think a lot of times spiritual warfare looks a lot more like helping people who are battling addiction or helping people who are going through divorce helping people who feel like they can't make ends meet. Those are the kinds of things that are what it looks like to preach the gospel. And it wasn't that the disciples went out, let me, let me feed you a meal or let me cast out a demon so I can tell you about Jesus. No, 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 they would tell people that Jesus is king. But listen, serving other people, that is also preaching the gospel. Like the way we live tells people who is really king of the world, who is king of our lives, and that's the kind of people that we're called to be. That's the kind of church that we want to be. In fact, I know for years we've wrestled with the fact, now I'm going to step on some toes, I mean this in the most loving way possible, but we notice like when like it's worship's like wrapping up and then like then half the people show up in the room. Because I think our tendency can be like, well, if I get there for the message, the message is the main part, and that's why we go to church. Please, please, please know what I'm doing right now, that is not why you're here today. I hope it is helpful. That is not why you are here. And in fact, one time we, we flipped it up for a few months, and we did preaching first, and then we did worship. And man, the look on people's faces when they showed up 15 minutes late, like, what time did service start? Like, how late are we? But that, that's why as a church, a few years ago, we shifted to this model where we have communion every week. 
Because guess who really gets center stage? Guess who's really the reason why we're here? It's not for a message to equip you or encourage you or anything like that. It is so that you can spend time with Jesus. And so I hope that when worship happens, that we come in with joy, thanksgiving in our hearts, or maybe even a season of lament like, God, I am here, and I don't feel like you're here, but I'm, I'm here anyway. And when I teach, I hope I'm just giving you some conversation starters for that time with Jesus. But I know we've been in this season, you know, between Christmas and school starting, where we don't know what day it is half the time, and we're not sure what time zone we're in anymore. And maybe for you the last few weeks, really, you haven't had that time with Jesus. Listen, before we go to work tomorrow, before we go out to lunch this afternoon, before we go back to school, before anything else, it's so important for us just to sit in this moment and spend time with him. Because if we don't start with time with him, we'll never become like him. Then we certainly won't be sent by him. And so today, we just want to continue in worship like we do every single week with the time of communion. And so would you just bow your heads and close your eyes across this room? Jesus, we come before you right now. And we're so thankful that you are king. And we're thankful that you came to give us this different way of living and moving and being in the world. We're thankful that when we see the brokenness, we know that you are working it out, that you are going to renew and restore this broken world. And I pray that right now in this moment, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. Jesus, I pray as we sit with your body and your blood, that you would speak to us. We could rest in your presence. We could abide in you. But I pray there are things in our lives that we need to cut out, that you would just make that apparent right now in this moment. God, if there are certain of those practices that we need to implement, would you make that known? God, I pray that as we leave this place, you would give us eyes to see the hurting and the broken. And that where we see injustice, we wouldn't just speak it, but also work to rectify it. Would you meet us here? It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock. But we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.